This is the Bitcoin Dad, and I'm about to interview a OG Bitcoiner, an original gangster Bitcoiner. He goes by Capitalist Dog, and like your Bitcoin Dad, he operates as a NIM, a pseudonymous individual. And he's really interesting. I met him at a conference, and we have always been talking. He's someone who's really building products on Bitcoin. And in addition to having the technical background to actually produce software projects built on top of Bitcoin, he's also very thoughtful about what sort of technologies are useful on Bitcoin. He has views on things like sidechains and stablecoins that I think are not expressed so frequently. So I think this is a really interesting perspective and it was a very good conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. This is the Bitcoin Dad recording on Friday, April 29th, 2022. And today I am interviewing an acquaintance of mine, Capitalist Dog. How are you, sir? Hey, pleasure to be with you, man. Now, do we want to talk about how we met or should we just jump into what, we, what we're going to talk about? A little context might be good. It was the whale party in Miami uh, last year, right? Yeah, I remember the scene like it was yesterday. We were in some fancy hotel lounge, and there was some pretty good hors d'oeuvres. And there was a Cuban guy rolling hand-rolled cigars, but no one had found that room, so it was totally empty. Yep, that's right. Yeah, we hung out in that room and got some uh, cigars that were priced right. They were pretty damn good. Yeah, I got to say, that was the the highlight of my conference, because... We were talking about you had participated in some hackathon and you had, you know, an interesting project that was kind of picks and shovels ready. And all of the old dentists who had been roped into that whale group, they had all like voted for some weather betting market app that never got created in the end, I think. Yeah. And those are those are pretty good guys that won that. Um, but that definitely the experience I have with VCs in the space. It was the pitch day the whale section of last year's conference. I did not do the pitch day this year. I uh, didn't make the cut. But yeah, so my project, um, I've been building on Lightning for uh, three, going on four years now. It was very early to start playing with Lightning. Just got very interested in the idea of the native web payments use case. Like you know, the store value element of Bitcoin is one thing, but it does need to scale at some point and be used in people's day-to-day -day lives to stay relevant. And there's just so many uses for it like as that native web payment, and I just started building software for it. Didn't really have a, the kind of plan that VCs like. I just knew I needed to start building towards the future that I saw that way longer time preface. Seeing lightning everywhere on the internet requires a lot of different components, and it just kind of started moving in that direction. And they and they haven't gotten it, and they still haven't. But I'm starting to get a little bit more focused with some of the stuff that I have built, particularly lightning dot video. Um, which is some video infrastructure we built that's you know, intended to be you know, decentralized and let people you know, monetize their content with less friction, less cost, uh, you know, just generally try to create a better experience for creators. Great. So I'm going to describe how I've used lightning.video so far, and maybe you jump in where I'm missing something or where you want to elaborate, okay? Sure. So I went to lightning.video, and what I saw was there are several videos and they have this little lock icon on them and if i click on the lock icon i get a qr code and a lightning invoice string and if i pay that 
the video unlocks. And, and also every video has a cost in Satoshi's to unlock the video. That's right. Yeah, that's the uh, that's like the initial uh, use case that we shipped it with. That, that's the paywall functionality. Users can monetize like their comments. So if someone leaves a comment, they have to pay to leave that comment. And that can kind of function as a, like a super chat as well. You know, asking questions on a live stream. Yeah, and uh, the other thing is you can disable the paywall too. So if you have content that you want to give away for free, and more of like the value for value model where you just kind of rely on tips uh, or those comments, you can do that too. And the difference between us and like legacy platforms is because of the Lightning Network, we don't have to be beholden. Uh, the banks are obvious. Obviously, we don't have to be beholden to banks, but we don't have to be beholden to the advertiser networks. That's really where a lot of the censorship comes from. Like Alex Jones can't get on YouTube and talk shit about vaccines when Pfizer gives YouTube billions of dollars. Like that's the real problem. When I've so I've used it just once just to test it out, and I've unlocked the video with a Lightning payment that I I scanned a QR code using Breeze and sent a small payment, and then I left a comment and I paid for that too. And this is very familiar because this podcast is on podcasting 2.0. And so I can be, I get boosts from my audience. And I also listen to other podcasts that have this functionality. And so I'm used to boosting creators. And this is very similar, but obviously the paywall functionality is a little different because instead of tips, we have paywalls, which I think are not really a problem if the paywall is reasonably priced. And when you price things in Satoshi's, it tends to be pretty reasonably priced. Whereas when you see the Bloomberg paywall, oh, if you'd like to read this article, please pay $165 for a year subscription. And you're like, uh, I'd rather not do that. Yeah, you might want to see one specific piece of content from a creator, not necessarily subscribe to everything that they've ever done and pay accordingly. And also to pay that Bloomberg paywall, I need to open up a payment portal. I need to get my credit card out. And not, maybe I save this information in my browser, which is not a good practice, but there's it's not a very smooth flow. Whereas with integrated Lightning, I, I mean, I've never used a Lightning wallet that integrated with my browser, but you could literally have a wallet with a small balance that could integrate with my browser and could automatically pay these QR codes, I think, pretty trivially, right? Yeah, that's part of our roadmap, too. Um, there's like browser extensions like Albi that are you know, they're going in that direction. And that's really just getting the the user experience down to the native web payments that Lightning can be. But the other part of that is the privacy. So, like when you're unlocking content at Bloomberg, Bloomberg now knows who you are. To you know, like you're in their database. They're going to look at your browsing history on their site, and they're going to create a profile, and they're they're definitely going to sell that, right? You know, because everyone's trying to monetize every little piece of data from their platform. But I think what you said about the advertiser model structurally being sort of censorship inducing because of the way that large advertising contracts are distributed. That's really interesting. Have you thought more about where that's going? In the last couple of weeks, I don't know, you know, for anybody that pays attention to markets like Netflix has tanked, you know, in the markets like during this bear market, YouTube is under pressure because their advertising revenue isn't where it is. So it's a fundamentally broken model and like jack dorsey of like twitter fame has said this too like if lightning existed when the internet was created none of the platforms that exist today would work the way that they work because advertising is broken you need a team of people to go out and sell these advertising deals you're then under the thumb of those advertisers that are in direct conflict with the kind of content uh, that people are trying to upload so like 
if multi-billion dollar corporations uh, are dependent on a massive narrative, then that contrary narrative is automatically verboten. From, you know, and, and we see that's exactly what we see with YouTube. You can't say anything negative about uh, massive advertising. You can't say anything negative about Pfizer products. You can't say anything negative um, about you know, elements of the state that, that have a lot of advertising budget. And, and that's not because Google themselves necessarily care. Like, you know, the people there might, you know, they're, they're all cronies that are put in, um, you know, by uh, big capital management. But thinking of it from an incentive perspective, the only reason they should care is for revenue. And that's because their revenue is from the same people that don't want certain information to get out. It's just completely backwards the way that it works right now. It sounds like, in general, what you're describing is surveillance capitalism. The idea that you exist in this ecosystem that is generally controlled by corporations that have interlinking platforms, and then they're just operating on a profit-maximizing function. And of course, they're you know they're made up of people, and people have values. So certain companies emphasize certain things, but at the end of the day, it's all about money. And we kind of have this. Like our output or the output of this function is what we have today, which is very amorphous, hard to define moderation policies on major platforms. And when I look at lightning.video, what I see is if we remove the advertising influence from the platform, then we now just have a relationship between the creator and the viewer. But how does the lightning.video platform get into that relationship? Because you've got costs, you're hosting video. That's not cheap. So how, how do you fit in there? Now that we have the, this tool in Lightning, we can charge for services at a much more acute level than is otherwise possible. So like you can have that direct relationship with your audience. You can go to GoDaddy, you can buy a domain, and then you can pay $10 or $20 a month or whatever it is to get space and bandwidth on their server. And you're pretty much going to be not censored. Like, you know, the states of Iran and Alex Jones, they have their own websites with their own web servers and they don't get censored. That's not necessarily something most people are interested in doing because it's either too technical or it's too time consuming or it's too much investment. But with Lightning, you can pay lightning.video as a hosting provider. You know, look at lightning.video as a hosting provider. The basic, the equivalent of a postage stamp to get your content out to the world. And then you have access to our global, fast content delivery network that is every bit as fast as YouTube. And you just paid for what you used, like that, you know, that 35 cents equivalent in Satoshi's to upload your content. You didn't even have to spend like the $10 a month you would have GoDaddy, literally 35 cents. And that might be really enabling to, you know, people that have been excluded by the financial system in other parts of the world too. Now they can get their message out and they can monetize uh, their content, their ideas uh, from international audiences that might not ascribe you know, what we would consider the minimum amount of value to be transacted, whether that's several dollars or $10, like they give you a nickel. You can make a nickel off a thousand people and then you might be doing really well in, in parts of the world. That's a that's really interesting. What I'm hearing is that because you're using Lightning as the payment rails, you don't have to think in terms of billing the creators on your platform in discrete chunks. So the way that most cloud hosting works is you have to pay upfront 10 bucks or five bucks a month just for the minimum tier. And then you've got a quota and you can put a lot of stuff in there. But what you're saying is that because the these traditional tiers 
are kind of optimized for credit card purchases because there are minimum fees with credit cards. It just prices out a huge number of people who just need to upload a very small thing or they have a very limited budget and they can't make those credit card minimums and they're effectively completely deplatformed just because of the payment rails, not even getting into the whole sort of network effect advertising model like on YouTube and yeah, and it's all very top down. Like you mentioned surveillance capitalism earlier. It's all downhill from the money being broken. It wasn't my intent to price an upload to lightning video as the minimum amount of a, you know, credit card swipe. But like you just mentioned that, and that's absolutely true. The minimum credit card swipe charge is roughly that of what it costs to post on lightning video. And that's why that's just not possible with fiat platforms. Like it needed to be lightning this native internet payment system in order to fix these incentives that have shaped the platforms that are the status quo and that's why the platforms of the future will leverage bitcoin's unfair advantage like bitcoin is an unfair advantage in anything it competes in so i didn't have to be any smarter than bitcoin i just had to take what bitcoin did well like what bitcoin excels at and just apply it to something old which is content hosting like it's really not that revolutionary when you look at the implementation, it's like, okay, you access a CDN and a web interface and a little bit of business logic. But what you really changed is you just changed the money. The money is what enables everything to work better. This is really interesting because I found the My Content page. So it looks like I can register a channel and this is essentially an account on your platform. And now I could say, upload my podcast. I don't have video, but if I did, I could upload video of the podcast and now I could sort of participate in this model. And that's really interesting. I'm I'm thinking about how I might be able to use it. I was just going to say, yeah, like there's a class of people that like, and I'm one of them, I tend to consume my podcast through YouTube. Oftentimes they're like put to a slideshow. It's you know, it's like background noise on it. Like I listen to audio through my TV, basically. So that's just like one use case where we're, what we're charging for with your channel is we're basically charging for namespace. And namespace is the other thing that you would pay for if you had your own website because you would register your domain name. Well, instead of spending $10 for BitcoinDadPod.com, you can just be BDadPod on Lightning Video. And it doesn't actually have a cost. It's just making sure that you're invested in the platform and that you, you already have content on Lightning Video. If you have content on Lightning Video, then you can use our namespace. Again, reducing cost for certain entrants that are otherwise excluded right now. One thing I want to ask, though, is because you are lightning.video, because lightning.video is a platform that you are hosting, that means that like YouTube, other these creators who post content on your platform are going to be subject to your terms of service. If you just leave it as is, and I'm going to go immediately to the straw man or steel man, I'm not sure here, someone's going to post CP on here. Now, what do you do? There is a terms link at the bottom where I declare openly, we are a U.S. for-profit incorporated entity, you know, state of Delaware. Because of the incentives of the platform, I don't have to have a, you know, long lawyer written policy. I can say, you know, we're a U.S. company, we are bound by the laws of the United States. And if you post something that is unlawful or you know, otherwise getting into the non-aggression principle, like obviously things that I just wouldn't want there, regardless of the law, they will be removed. And I will work with law enforcement if so required, like in certain cases. Like it's no getting around that fact. Like the state is real. Certain activities are not going to be facilitated by others. If you want to get into those things, that's on you. But what's nice about that 
is because I'm charging on a per upload basis. I have not had to remove a single piece of content yet. Because if you're the kind of person that's uploading that, you know that that content is not desirable. And you would only do that on a free platform because you think you're getting away with something. You're not parting with sats to upload that content because you know that it's just not acceptable. It, it, always, it acts as a hygiene. This is really interesting because I've noticed this with the boosting function in podcasting 2.0. And for any listeners who not be familiar with this, boosting is this ability to send a message with a small lightning payment directly to the podcast. Because you have to spend a tiny amount of money or a bunch, I mean, I've gotten boosts that were very generous, you do not send hate mail. Even if you're going to be critical, it's always constructive criticism. And so what you're describing is that maybe by monetizing, even to a small degree, things like uploads, and this obviously wasn't possible before Lightning. Now, in addition to the cost of making a message or looking at content, filtering out trolls and filtering out bad actors, because you can force every actor to kind of make a little bit of economic calculation when they upload anything, they police themselves better. They make the economic calculation and they in a kind of results in desirable incentives. Right. Yeah. Again, it, it comes just like the advertising. It comes back to the incentives. Like if you have a platform that's based on users uploading things at no cost to them, they're going to upload things of no value. Whereas they have to front the value of whatever it is that they're uploading on my platform and are better behaved for it. That's just fascinating. And by the way, that first question, it's kind of like the first question that the mainstream media would hit you with. So sorry about that. Sure. One thing I noticed is that you actually direct people to the self-hosted open source project that you developed that Lightning.video was based on. Yeah, that kind of gets to the provenance of this. Like, So Lightning Video was infrastructure we built for Lightning Page. Now, Lightning Page is a much broader vision that's like the decentralized WeChat of you know Bitcoin, right? That could consume all global commerce. It involves basically decentralized Twitter that runs off your Lightning node. So we needed to build video infrastructure that worked with something like that. And an interesting thing about the internet is you can't really decentralize video the way we understand it now, just because of the way the internet is architected. And I'm coming from a systems engineer background, like I'm an ex-Microsoft engineer, and I just look at the way that the internet works. Like when you go to a web page to view video, that video is coming from a data center somewhat proximal to you over it's called the content delivery network, and that involves the distance of how far you are to that data center, so that's called latency. That's why peer-to-peer -peer video sharing won't really ever gain traction, because it's too slow to do all that peer-to-peer -peer coordination. Like, by the time the video... Like PeerTube? We do use WebTorrent in our video infrastructure, but I'll get to that. Yeah, like, you need a video platform to be performant, and therefore it does need an element of centralization in order to be performant. Now. The video infrastructure for Lightning Page, again, if we fix the incentives, it's about the namespace, right? So your problem like with getting censored from YouTube isn't that you can't put videos on the internet. It's that people were knowing to come to YouTube slash whatever my channel is, and then they can't anymore. As opposed to like an Alex Jones, if he has alexjones.com, he can always change his host, like who his provider is. And he might even have multiple providers. Like if I get taken down from AWS, I automatically fail over you know, GoDaddy or something like that. Like there are, it's about owning your namespace. And that's what Lightning Page would enable. And then Lightning Video would be simply one provider of your video infrastructure. 
but you could have multiple. You could have multiple video providers that you pay to host mirrors of your content. We just roll back to the issue of decentralizing video content. I don't think I have quite the technical background that you do. What I can see is that it just doesn't make sense to decentralize everything. And so these altcoin projects, the Ethereum world computer, it's just nonsense. It doesn't make sense if you have even a small amount of understanding of the limitations of what a blockchain is, what are the properties of decentralized networks and decentralized consensus. And so it seems that there's always going to be points of centralization in technological infrastructure and in businesses providing services. So when you created your first project, Shock Wallet then became Lightning.Page and elements of that have been turned into Lightning.Video. Your first project was actually, was it putting Twitter on Lightning? Was the idea to basically have some sort of social media platform that was sitting on top of a Lightning node, therefore was sort of a decentralized social media platform with integrated payments? Was, was that the idea? Do I have that right? Pretty much, yeah. And I was trying to design such a decentralized Twitter in a way that kind of worked with how Lightning works. So like, Lightning is a, a graph of channels. You know, the social part was a graph of you know, metadata, basically. And so you were looking at the underlying structure of the Lightning Network, which is the series of computers running the Lightning software, and some of them open payment channels between them. And then you were almost graphing identity onto these nodes and these nodes sort of become users in your social network model. Correct. Yeah. So like it doesn't run on lightning per se, but it, it works as an overlay network. So a separate identity component that is native to the web because, you know, we consume media through web browsers and, you know, mobile devices that rely on SSL basically. So I was trying to create a web-friendly peer-to-peer user graph that could be used for a social network. But then obviously, if you have that, you know, most businesses done through social networks now anyway, so we, we have that payments layer. So it's kind of a complement to, to Lightning. Why did this occur to you as a first project? I'm thinking of Mastodon, which is sort of like Twitter, except you can host your own server and you can allow people to register with you. But Mastodon has the problem of, even though the network itself is decentralized, if I have a Mastodon server and you register an account with me, I'm the tyrant on my own server. And you can't necessarily pull your data off of that server if you run afoul of my terms of service or my content moderation policy. Everyone almost needs to run their own server to really get the full benefits. And it seems that not everyone wants to do that. I haven't come across another solution for like a decentralized social network that really has any promise like in you know mastodon some of the problems that you enumerated with it are kind of case in point what lightning is is it's basically you have a key pair that key pair is the owner of certain metadata that certain metadata can be observed over a gossip protocol to do things like so there's not really a an arbiter like a mastodon server it's basically as long as anybody can speak to a key or you know, has information about that key, that information is verifiable. It doesn't matter where you get it from. So are you describing the Lightning protocol or are you describing Lightning.page, the social network overlay you're building on Lightning? They're similar. They're just data signed and shared cryptography, and then it's just shared over a, a, a transport. Uh, so Lightning has its own transport. The transport that Lightning Page uses is, is an inherently web-based one. 
So your data might be bouncing off of my web server, but you could always stand up your own web server and your data could also bounce off of that. So it's not like Mastodon where it's tied to that particular Mastodon instance's namespace. It's literally, hey, I signed for this information about myself. Like, here's my avatar, here's my signature. So you can know for a fact that I've said that this is my avatar and we can just bounce this off of web servers. But if I'm making posts and I'm not running my own Lightning node and instance of lightning.page, then this post data has to live somewhere. Even though I control the the key pair that's associated with this post, the data has to live somewhere. So how does that help me controlling the key pair if the data is on your server and I'm posting something that you, know, you want to take down? Because you know, that's your data, you're not restricted to where you post it and where your audience gets it from. So you could, for redundancy's sake, let's say I censor you, when you make a post, that post could be going to another party. It could be going to your own relay. It could be going to a competitor of mine's relay. It could be going to an open community relay. You could have that data be in four places when once you write it. Yeah. Basically, you've built in some redundancy at the protocol level so that as a user, I can relatively seamlessly set up a relay policy so my content gets to servers that have a lot of users and they can see it. But also if some of those server admins disagree with me or don't like me or take my content down, it still exists somewhere else. So it's not like I've been deleted off Twitter or something. Correct. And to take it a step further, that your data might not even need to necessarily exist on another server. It could be local to you, but if you still have a connection to another peer, that peer could ask you for it. They could say, Oh, I've received a request for information about this key pair. Do you have any information to offer? And then the user would then be getting the information from you directly, even though that request bounced off a relay. So it kind of creates this mesh of web servers that is pretty indestructible. All you really need is a web server and an SSL Now, this is really interesting. I feel like we're getting close to answering a question that I've had around projects like Lightning.page and other projects built on Lightning, which is sort of, Look, Mastodon exists, it works. Matrix, which is a sort of open source Slack alternative, which I use and I think is really great, this works. But it's kind of difficult to get people to use these services. People really only start caring about open source federated alternatives to centralized corporate platforms after they've been deplatformed. So normally people need to touch the hot stove, they get hurt. They get angry at being deplatformed or moderated on a platform that they don't control. And then they try something a little bit more decentralized, a little bit more self-sovereign. Sometimes they even self-host it. But that's obviously a slow process. What I'm hearing is that because Lightning is this incredibly efficient and useful payment network, is it that building social media, building content delivery on top of or associated with this super efficient payment network has some sort of maybe synergy. It's like you're actually going to get more people on lightning.page because people are going to need to use lightning. Is that the idea? Uh, pretty much. Payments have been the missing piece. By building a social network that includes that missing piece, then we can start to actually onboard. Because to, to your point, like unless you've been censored, you have no real reason to use another platform. So for that platform to that platform then needs to be better in some way. And Lightning makes things better. Like what we talked about video, it makes the incentives better. 
page the same thing. It just enables a whole bunch of different elements that increase the user experience and actually give people a reason to use these new platforms, not because they've been censored, because they're just, as a matter of fact, better in some way. Instead of, say, setting up a newsletter on Substack, which is a company that helps people monetize newsletters, if I were to set this up on lightning.page, which I don't know if that's possible right now with the development of that project, but I think we spoke about that earlier. Now I can send out my newsletter and I can get lightning payments directly. And this is just better than having to deal with Substack and their payment processor and only making 40% of every transaction for my newsletter because they're taking a cut because it's their platform, Substack's platform that I'm creating content on. And then also they have credit card processing and legacy finance is really inefficient. By fixing a number of those UX problems, that's really what Lightning applications should be focused on. It's not creating alternatives for the sake of creating alternatives, but really understanding what Bitcoin is, what Lightning is, and how it makes the web experience just better. Cut out all that friction and promote your platform on those merits alone. Like People don't even need to know what Bitcoin or Lightning is. They just want to know that this is a better tool. And what you're using for as the creator of that tool, you're using Lightning to achieve. You can essentially host your own content distribution, host your own payment processor, which is a Lightning node. And this gives the business or the individual who's doing this a lot of, let's say, resilience, because now you're not going to have business disruption if your processing network goes down. Now you don't really have to worry about the drama around culture wars, around moderation policies and whatnot. And one thing I want to mention to our listeners who maybe haven't been impacted by content moderation and and don't sort of see it as, as a huge issue, I think that it's really not an issue until you run afoul of it, and then it becomes a very big issue. And so sometimes I think it's convenient to sort of say, okay, well, the people I don't like are getting moderated, and I think that's maybe even good for society. But the problem is, I think we're in a stage of society and government where control of institutions swings back and forth very quickly, like maybe election cycle to election cycle. And so whatever moderation policy is being used to silence the voices you don't like will almost inevitably be applied to your voice in the next election cycle. Just a thought I've had, if you want to respond. I think that's the kind of thing that'll take time to bear out why like these new platforms will win. Like, you know, I don't know if you've heard of the Lindy effect, like, like the, the longer something is around, the longer it will tend to be around. We're already seeing cracks in these legacy platforms. The whole Elon Musk thing, Twitter, like that's going to be a completely different platform because it collapsed under its own nonsense. If we are building better platforms that aren't as likely to succumb to those issues, eventually their own gravity starts to swallow everything up. Sort of like Bitcoin is doing with money. Bitcoin is the best money, sucking everything in. The next platform will do the same thing. Right. Except with, let's say, lightning.video, you're hosting video. And in many ways, that puts you in a similar category in terms of content moderation as Twitter, because there's content on your platform. It's produced by other people. But in the eyes of regulators, the EU or the US, you are making that content available for the world because it's on your servers. And so 
you may need to take something down, even if you don't want to, because you might get a legal letter to your corporation and it says, look, there's uh, this video and, uh, you know, someone's describing in detail how to make a nuclear bomb. And we just, you know, we really don't want that out there. And you might say, hey, I disagree. This is just a science project, but okay, you got to take it down. Now, what I'm thinking is that the difference between what you're building and Twitter is that once Twitter takes that content down, it's kind of down forever. And the person who put it up there, yeah, they can put up their own website and they can try to put it up again, but no one knows about that website. So they sort of lose the network effect of the Twitter platform. But with what you're creating, you can actually spin up another instance of something like lightning.page or lightning.video because this is all based on open source software. And so it suddenly becomes like whack-a-mole. Like you can't really necessarily take things down so easily because maybe your company has to take it down. But if you can spin up another instance or just put your data on another instance that is providing a similar service, now they need to be subpoenaed as well. And so it just becomes this kind of anti-fragile system. Am I right in this is where it's going or have I missed something? From a business perspective, Again, like it comes back, you know, they said to the barrier for us to remove stuff is a lot higher than it would be for someone that reports to advertisers. Um, But yeah, like we have WebTorrent as part of Lightning Video. So ultimately what you're you're pulling down from us when you watch a video is you're pulling the WebTorrent magnet data, which contains a web server address and a hash. So we could be like a point of redundancy if you wanted to run your own, or you could have multiple providers. So like that video could load not just from us, but it could load from multiple sources. Yeah, it's it's not decentralized in the fact that there's no point of centralization, like we are a point of centralization for our own service. But because it's architected differently, it's decentralized in that there's all these provider options that make things more competitive and resilient. It's both technological in the sense that this platform plugs into the Lightning Network, it plugs into a payments protocol. It's not like you have specific relationships with payment providers who can individually enforce policy on you. But because you've taken this technological payment step, the business model changes. Now you don't have advertisers who also have a say in what goes on to the platform. And so basically, it sounds like we're creating a more neutral platform here. And so people can kind of indicate what they want by how many sats they're willing to pay for stuff, and people can fill that niche without too many other individuals having an opinion about it. Yeah, it removes a lot of the the say of the people that you don't really want to hear from. Big money that controls the advertiser networks who also are the same people that pull the strings of the government. We are out out of their purview, as has historically been with platforms. Like the levers that they use to manipulate things are just gone. Like they don't like Bitcoin gets rid of them. We've talked a lot about this project. Is it okay if we now move to sort of talk about some general things and your views on them, and and maybe we can kind of uh, talk about some. I wouldn't say competing projects because obviously you don't have to talk about a competing project and give them free advertising. But there's an Ethereum project that kind of brings to mind what you're doing with Lightning Page. Have you heard of Urbit? I have heard of Urbit. I didn't know they were um, involved with Ethereum. Like I have met the dude at a Bitcoin conference, but I don't really know too much about it. I know they had a pretty ambitious. Um, they were trying to do like a full stack op system, stuff like. That. 
the architecture wasn't quite clear to me. But. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that I'm technical enough to have a strong opinion about the decisions they made. I heard about them because Bitcoin sign guy got into Urbit and was sort of shilling them wherever he went. And so I, on a weekend in the woods, instead of relaxing and turning off my computer, I downloaded their client and I connected to the Urbit network. And I just found it, I mean, this was, I think, a year and a half ago, but I just found it to be an absolute joke because they were recreating the wheel. You know, why do you need a new programming language? Why do you need another VM living on top of our existing internet protocols? And how exactly are you buying your star or planet or solar system? Oh, it's Ethereum addresses. It's like that Ethereum DNS. It's like Namecoin, but on Ethereum. And then the Urbit group, I think they created two entities that sort of trade back and forth to give the appearance that there is an ecosystem there when it's really the same people involved in both entities. They then price the Urbit domains. So, you know, I don't know if I'm just being a Bitcoin maximalist here, but it kind of looks like an altcoin to me because I just don't understand how you can say that an Urbit star is worth 5,000 bucks. There's no demand for it. So you're just setting a price and kind of seeing who buys? There's not a secondary market. It's all sold directly through the creator. So it kind of looks like founders cashing out. Had I even known it had anything to do with Ethereum, I'd be able to dismiss it out of hand. Like anybody that's architecting anything that's supposed to be, you know, either censorship resistant or anti-fragile, like is not gonna. It has a clue. Is not gonna do that on it. So pretty easy to dismiss it out of hand for those reasons. You know, also the scope. Like, what problem are you solving? The kind of the whole journey we've talked about with page and video is like video. Is a simplified use case for the infrastructure built for page. Unless you can do that with what you're building, then probably not fixing anything. I'm kind of thinking of the cathedral and the bazaar. So for any listeners who are not familiar with the history of the Linux operating system, or I should say GNU slash Linux, there's this... Oh, did you catch that? Sorry. There's this idea of the cathedral, and the cathedral is a project that is centralized. There's generally a small design team, and they have this grand vision, and then they organize top down and they get a lot of people to implement it. And then there's this theory of the bazaar, and the bazaar is all on one level. People are going back and forth, they're haggling, and they're quickly making deals in the present. And so the concept is that Linux, it comes out of the bazaar. Linux is a huge number of people solving problems in the present. And Microsoft and Windows and their grand project to finally create an operating system that works is the cathedral. And we can kind of see that cathedrals are always unfinished, as is Windows, whereas Linux is also unfinished, but it works in the moment because that's kind of what we're optimizing for. And I I sort of see in the way that you've shifted from lightning.page, shockwallet, lightning.video, you seem to be in the bazaar as opposed to building some cathedral somewhere that no one will, you know, use. Yeah, like, and if not for the cathedral concept, there wouldn't be the bazaar. Like, the bazaar lives outside the cathedral worksite, I guess. It really comes down to, like, having that direction is one thing. It's a good vision driver, but in, in practicality, it ends up collapsing under its own weight. And that's why what we're building hasn't really changed. But what has changed is in the way we focus on specific components and the way that we communicate what those components do. And then the you know, the standards that we set for those to make sure that they, you know they are solid, not you know, looking too far ahead of where we are today and kind of sacrificing the details that matter. There's a hybrid approach there somewhere like the cathedral vision bizarre bizarre construction i guess 
I guess I was being an extremist there. I'm uh, I'm just someone who went from Windows to Mac to Linux, and you know I burnt the bridge. I I kept one computer with Windows on it because I thought when you first make that transition to Linux, you think, oh, I might need this for something, and then I never used it again. I worked for Microsoft, and I've been running Linux <laughs> for for years. Like my my fiat grind is mostly Windows. Like I live in both worlds. There is still to this day nothing on Linux that competes with like Microsoft's ecosystem as a large like corporation. Like you need to encompass broad swath of things into like a, a vertical centrally controlled thing. Like there's nothing competes with like Active Directory teams and Office 365 plus the group policy on the desktop. Like nothing competes with that. Uh, but in any case, yeah, that's kind of the the trade-offs there, right? Like there are certain use cases that lend themselves well to a big comprehensive ecosystem. And then there is every other use case that is better off having good tools that they can use to assemble their own solution. Yeah, for sure. This is kind of a new podcast and we have a mix of listeners, some who come from different communities, some who are no coiners who are interested in testing the water. And one thing that I've made clear is that I think that almost every altcoin project and Ethereum is just they're so misguided that it's easy to dismiss them as cash grabs, though there probably are a few good-hearted projects out there that are just maybe a little smaller. But why, in your mind, is a project building on Ethereum a red flag? Could you explain that to someone who maybe listens to MSNBC and they hear Bitcoin and Ethereum in the same breath all the time? The reason it's a red flag is because like Ethereum doesn't solve any problems, right? So how can you build a solution on top of it? if it has no underlying utility in and of itself. Like anything that's built on Ethereum can be built correctly either on Bitcoin or it doesn't need a blockchain altogether. Like that's usually the case. Usually the problem is that there doesn't need to be a blockchain involved or there needs to be better money involved. Neither of those lend themselves to Ethereum. They're either Bitcoin or non-blockchain. You're starting off on the wrong foot. For someone coming in from the outside, they might say, well, Bitcoin market cap is 700 billion and Ethereum market cap is 400 billion. So what do you mean Ethereum's not solving any problem? There seem to be people doing stuff there. How would you think about that response? A lot of companies are worth a lot of money before they go to zero. Sears was trading at however many billions of dollars a couple of days before it went to zero. We're in a technical space where there's very little friction to invest and there's a lot of dumb money out there that's looking for asymmetric upside. This, again, it comes back to the money being broken. That's something Bitcoin fixes. When you understand what Bitcoin is, quit falling for the illusions of like these possible returns and something like an Ethereum. You're being sold promises because you need asymmetric returns so you'll believe anything. If you're a boomer and you're behind on your retirement, you need to believe the Ethereum narrative because you need to believe that it's going to outperform any other thing that you could reasonably expect. Bitcoin's just too simple. So if someone is feeling behind in terms of their financial position and they want to catch up, then Ethereum is filling the same role as SPACs or Tesla stock or any of these meme hypey businesses that conventional financial analysts seem to be okay with putting in their customers' portfolios. We all know that person that jumps from pyramid scheme to pyramid scheme in the meat space. Like they're selling Tupperware, they're selling makeup, they're selling health drinks. They always have this new business that's going to 
basically save them from whatever's going on in their life, whether that's financial or you know, some other mental health thing that they have. It's some distraction from their real problems. Someone is selling them an escape. They're not necessarily dumb people. They're not evil people that are out to perpetuate the scam. They're just, they have to believe in something. That's really what you know, altcoins and Ethereum in particular are taking advantage of. They're taking trusting people that are in need in some way. They're just taking advantage of that. I think that's very articulate. I felt the same way. At the same time, I think that some Bitcoiners also put a lot of hope and dream into Bitcoin. And I'm not saying it's necessarily misplaced because I do believe that Bitcoin is something special, something that perhaps only happens once. And at the very least, it's an incredibly powerful technology. But how do you think about the kind of outrageous belief in Bitcoin and, and Bitcoin maximalism. You know, those same people that are buying the Ethereum scams because they need to believe in something, they, they find Bitcoin too, like, and they maybe read a, a bad tweet from somebody that says, if you buy like $100 worth of Bitcoin, you'll retire in 10 years. And we know that even as hardcore Bitcoin maxis, that's probably a ridiculous estimate. With time in Bitcoin, you, you appreciate it for its stability. Elder millennial I guess you could say we've never really had a savings technology until Bitcoin. Like, it was never conceivable that we could save our way uh, into retirement, but now we can. It's really about adapting those behavior patterns. Like, when you find Bitcoin, it's impossible to understand it for what it is. It takes years. And it certainly did in my case. I'm not going to pretend I understood Bitcoin from day one. So it's really about reshaping those thought patterns people have often had from the cradle. Bitcoin is as behavioral as it is technology. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think it's important for people who are sort of listening to this podcast and coming into this idea of Bitcoin and the idea of what a private, non-state, unstoppable, unseizable money means that can also then you can build layers on top of it and you can do lightning.video or you can do lightning payments or podcasting 2.0. I think that it's important to not get frustrated and think, oh, it's too complicated because I certainly rejected Bitcoin the first couple times I encountered it. And it was actually only until Bitcoin solved an immediate problem for me that I just got it. I wonder if you had a similar experience. Yeah, I, I think for me, it was realizing how simple it was. Like we have a tendency to want to overcomplicate things. That's our excuse for not having understood them in the past, right? Like so many people don't understand how the financial system works because they assume it's like it's really complicated thing. And that's by design. Like they want you to go to financial advisors that sell you products and stuff like that. And a lot of the techno babble certainly gets to people in Bitcoin. You really start to understand it though when you to use a football analogy, the game slows down. You realize how simple it really is. Like it's just it's maintaining its quantity. Just it works like the internet does. It's not any more complicated than that. If you have something that doesn't increase in number, then you finally have a measuring stick. You can finally have a way to measure progress in your savings in your business. You know, businesses have to fight with inflation and so forth. You can simplify your life down to how much Bitcoin do I have in a decimal value? Oh my God, everything else has been noise this whole time. That's what I think is a big thing for people to get their heads around. Yeah, it is interesting because once you can grok the complexity of consensus and understand that it just works and there are some edge cases. And if you want to understand the edge cases, well, first of all, you don't need to because you can do stuff like okay, I got a big Bitcoin transaction. I'm going to wait for six confirmations and that's all I need to do. Or 
if you want to understand why you need to wait for six confirmations, yeah, you're going to have to go deeper. But for small transactions, hey, one confirmation, whatever. It feels like there's this initial layer of complexity, but then you use it, it just works. And now you can either relax and just rely on it, or you can go deeper and start to think about other applications and maybe potential problems down the line. So as someone who's been building on Lightning, have you ever looked at sidechain proposals? Have you thought about sidechains and other scaling technologies? I look at them and then I very quickly lose interest. Kind of brings it back to the virtue signaling. Like it exists in Bitcoin too, like making things overcomplicated because it can sound impressive. And we do users, you know, potential users a disservice by doing that. And I think things like sidechain proposals, those are trying to keep up with the shitcoin narrative. I don't really know what the motivation is for that. I don't know if it's like to try to shrink Ethereum's relative market cap. Like none of them have actually solved any problems yet. So pretty much anything you've read about sidechains has been a waste of time to this point anyway, because there's no practical use for them anywhere. Your point on sidechains is really interesting to me because I am actually very interested in sidechains. And I'm, I'm really interested to hear if you can maybe answer the question for me, like why I shouldn't be interested or why it's a waste of time. So I think that the most well-developed sidechain is probably the Blockstream Liquid sidechain. Blockstream has this protocol called Elements D, and Elements D is basically a fork of Bitcoin with confidential transactions. So on the Elements D blockchain, you can see recipients and you can see addresses but the transaction amounts are blinded using cryptography. Elements D has this privacy feature. And in addition to these blinded transactions, you also have the ability to use a slightly more expressive scripting language. So you can create secondary assets on Liquid. And right now, I think the major asset that's kind of traded on there is there is a tether. There is a US dollar stablecoin that runs on the Blockstream network. And obviously the tethers on Blockstream are just these tokens and the tokens are permissionless, but at the end of the day, they are issued by a central third party. So it's sort of a, the value is trusted even if the token is permissionless. Now, how does Liquid connect to Bitcoin? Basically, the way I've heard it explained is, I think Adam Bax, CEO of Blockstream, said, essentially, we're operating from the perspective that Bitcoin is perfect money. So if you want to unlock some new feature that's not already in Bitcoin, you have to weaken some property of Bitcoin to do that, if that makes sense. What they've done is they've weakened security. And so there's no mining on the Liquid sidechain. Instead, Liquid is essentially a multi-signature wallet held by, I think, 16 members of the Liquid Federation. And if Bitcoin is sent into this multi-signature wallet, then it can be redeemed for Liquid Bitcoin on the Liquid network. So you can peg into Liquid permissionlessly because you can just send Bitcoin into the Liquid multi-signature wallet, and then you can use the transaction in the Elements D client to sort of create Liquid Bitcoin in your Liquid wallet. Now, because Liquid has confidential transactions, the assumption is that Liquid block signers, because the Federation just signs blocks every minute, they're not going to necessarily censor anybody. And their security model is that all of the block signers are sort of companies using Liquid. So they you know, probably are 
not too interested in subverting it. And they're geographically distributed. So if you want to do an enforcement action on one of them, fine. We just kick them out of the Federation. But it would be difficult, theoretically, to do an enforcement action on, you know, the 60 Liquid Federation members because they kind of rotate through roles in the Federation all at once because they're distributed across the world. And then to peg out of Liquid, this is where I think it really gets a little iffy. The way that you peg out of Liquid is only Federation members can peg out. The peg out is permission. You basically need to find a Liquid Federation member who will buy your Liquid Bitcoin and send Bitcoin to your Bitcoin address. So there are some services that do that, but that's basically Liquid in a nutshell. I'd like to pare down the essential features of Liquid so we we can deconstruct those. Would you say that it's fair to say the features of Liquid are non-Bitcoin assets and confidential transactions? I think that's fair. And also faster block times. So the initial idea was that Liquid would be a settlement layer between exchanges, but that never happened. They just use Bitcoin and Lightning now. Could we agree to say that Lightning is better at that? Like it's taken the lead on that side of it. So that leaves us with the confidential transactions and the other assets. You could also say that Liquid is potentially a scaling protocol. I mean, sidechains generally, like Lightning, are scaling protocols because Liquid also has lower fees. I mean, you can do a lot of transactions on Liquid and all of that condenses to two transactions on the Bitcoin main chain. One transaction into the Liquid multisig, one transaction out. So yeah, it's competing with Lightning in a couple of ways then, condensing the on-chain footprint by consolidating transactions the speed. I would say to a degree, the confidential transactions are in favor of Lightning as well. Lightning is a very good privacy layer. It has a larger anonymity set, which is probably the most important element of anything for privacy. Like, there's not enough people using Liquid. Like If there were some serious activity that was trying to be shielded from whoever's in analyzing the chain, the companies that are part of that, you know, whatever, 13 or 16 multi-sig, whatever. They're a little bit more resilient than an SQL database, but by how much? Like That hasn't been a use case that we've seen We've seen take shape. I would say that the, the last remaining thing to take down is the non-Bitcoin assets, which is my favorite to take down. Oh, good. I have not yet seen a use case for non-Bitcoin assets to be on anything resembling a blockchain, or no, never mind Bitcoin. So you had mentioned about Tether. You you can have these Tether tokens that you don't necessarily need to communicate with Tether to transact them, but they're useless at the end of the day without Tether cashing you out. There's not really any reason to introduce all this complexity of a blockchain of Bitcoin security model for fake dollars that are still subject to the whims of a central issuer. Can you maybe try to, you know, playing devil's advocate, come up with a a non-Bitcoin asset that would benefit from Bitcoin security model? Because I, I think this starts to you know, show why there, there has been no utility derived from sidechains either implemented or in theory. Yeah, that's interesting. You're really getting at something when you say, why does a non-Bitcoin asset need to benefit from Bitcoin security model? Because I thought about this in the context of Tarot, the new Lightning Labs color coin protocol, essentially. And That was actually my first thought. So why do I not think the same thing about Liquid? I guess what I would say is, you know, first of all, and maybe I'm falling into the altcoin trap because I've used Liquid and, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it works. It kind of does what it says on the tin. So 
One thing that's interesting about Liquid is that Blockstream issues their mining note on Liquid and the El Salvador Bitcoin bond, which hasn't happened when it should have. So, you know, it's sort of questionable what's going on there. But this this was also supposed to be issued on Liquid. And so what I think is really interesting about it is that issuing derivative financial products using traditional TradFi rails is incredibly complicated and requires huge amounts of regulation and mistakes are made constantly and no one knows how many of the assets there are. In my mind, something like Liquid probably does asset transfer, like traditional brokerage asset transfer in a much more transparent and verifiable way and ultimately cheaper way than having these SQL databases maintained by multiple companies that are trying to track each other because they all know that they are each fudging the numbers and they're kind of all playing games in that system because it's very opaque and there's not a protocol for asset transfer. It's just these series of trusted intermediaries. To me, the liquid sidechain looks like something that could absorb the traditional brokerage market. Yeah, I'm not sure what it would be adding versus like a signature chain on like a distributed like NoSQL database. It, it just seems like an illusion to me. So like even if you know the uh, the Bitcoin bond uh, from El Salvador were to be issued on it, what is it adding to that experience that a regular federated database doesn't? You know, when you get to settling out of Bitcoin, like, you know, if Bitcoin is the settlement instrument, you know, maybe there's something there. But with a Bitcoin bond, it's all being processed through, you know, the note issuer. So I'm not I just have yet to see what value it actually adds relative to a number of solutions that already exist. Yeah, that's fair. And I think that I might not understand these things well enough to articulate a good case. I feel like I'm not necessarily 100% in agreement, but I, I hear what you're saying. One question is, though, because Liquid's native unit is Bitcoin, because Liquid Bitcoin are provably only created when Bitcoin go into the Liquid multisig, is it perhaps valuable simply to have an interface between Bitcoin and issued traditional assets like the Bitcoin bond? Because if you're going to have an asset on Liquid, it now has a, a Bitcoin price pair. And instead of having to trade a stock via a brokerage where I have to, say, sell Bitcoin for dollars, send the dollars to a brokerage, buy the asset, sell the asset, get dollars, buy Bitcoin, you know, self-custody it. Now there's just a, a single pair in Liquid. Maybe there's some value there. Maybe from like an exchange, like where you would have an asset that trades in Bitcoin because you could have some level of atomicity there where you swap you know, in and out of that asset and synthetic Bitcoin. And, you know, to be clear, it's synthetic Bitcoin as long as it's on liquid. So you can have some atomicity there and maybe do some things as an exchange. But that might be more about ease of development because you're kind of front-loaded the work to, in this case, Blockstream. So like as a developer, you might not have to do as much to make something like that work as an issuer. Like, you know, they're providing APIs. As a technical solution, it's probably not any better. It's not really saving anything. It's just kind of saving you the work if you want to market something as, you know, kind of being Bitcoin native. I see what you're saying. Now, one narrative around Bitcoin is banking the unbanked, providing a 
neutral network for financial inclusion. And this is sort of good for people who don't have bank accounts and, you know, maybe have not enough money to be in the purview of the traditional financial system. At the same time, Bitcoin is pretty rare in the developing world. And according to people like Anita Posh, who's a German Bitcoiner and podcaster who has some projects in Africa trying to use Bitcoin to you know, help people do economic development in their area. And also Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation, who's very interested in Bitcoin as a tool for financial and political freedom. They've identified that if you go to third world countries, people just, first of all, they can't distinguish between Bitcoin and all the altcoins. But secondly, they're much more interested in things like Tether on Tron. They're interested in dollar stable coins because they have a high time preference and super cheap transaction fees that are provided by garbage blockchains like Tron. I'm just wondering if there's any value in trying to meet that need at this point using layers like Tether on Liquid or maybe these tarot dollar assets on top of Lightning. That's an interesting chicken and the egg problem I do have some experience with because you know, developers I work with are in uh, you know Venezuela and other parts of the world where Bitcoin is not common for a couple of reasons. You know, one, you know, it's the, the stability aspect, right? Like, like let's say you're you're in Venezuela and your net worth is five dollars and you have that in a Bitcoin wallet and Bitcoin tanks twenty percent, you know, even though you only lost a dollar, you lost twenty percent of your net worth and that might be the difference between being comfortable for the month and really struggling. So that that's a risk that they can't take. I'm going to say this might be a liquid situation right now, because if they were holding these liquid Bitcoin, they could swap part of their stash into Tether in the same wallet. I think that's the wrong solution. And a lot of people are going that way. So you're not like alone in thinking that. I've been increasingly vocal about how I dislike those stablecoin solutions, because then we're just reinventing the whole system that put these, you know, Venezuelans and others into that position. But before I get back to that, well, like the second part of it is the transaction cost. So let's say even on a good fee day, Bitcoin costs you 30 cents to transact a dollar. Again, if you're in Venezuela and your net worth is $5, you know, nearly 10% of your net worth to make a grocery payment of a dollar is just not, it's just not feasible. So how did that problem present itself? It presented itself because of the legacy financial system. The reason that these people in Venezuela only have $5 to their name is because they have been excluded by this financial system that we're using Bitcoin to disrupt. So we can't solve their problems by reinventing the banking system of stable coins and trusted intermediaries and all these things that have screwed them to begin with. There has to be an arbitrage where we hire them. So I'm like, I'm hiring the developers in these countries with Bitcoin because I can. And that's how we include them. We don't include them by creating penny transactions and stable coins. We include them by bringing them into our economy that they've been excluded from. And that's how Bitcoin gets adopted in those countries, not by being cheaper, not by being more stable, but being more inclusive. I see. So that's the, the long view. Unfortunately, in the short term, if your net worth is $5 a day, you have a risk of starvation. So the question is, can they make it to the, the long term? Maybe. What we can do as Bitcoiners is not make stablecoin products for them, but rather try to help them earn Bitcoin. And hopefully I can do that with Lightning.video. There are other projects, humanitarian projects, basically just to bring them into the first world economy. Like They're in that position because our banking system decided that they should be. And that's what Bitcoin is for, is to tear down that banking system. It's not a technical solution that they, they are in need of. It's an economic solution. And Bitcoin's a tool for that. Bitcoin's not a technical tool there. It's a 
economic tool. Mm, that's a really interesting distinction. I, I think I agree with you. Another issue that I see with stable coins is if you have a bunch of stable coins floating around on your blockchain, if you ever have a contentious fork, that stablecoin issuer gets to gets to pick the winning fork because they just have to say, I'm not going to honor the coins on the other fork. And so even if the they're choosing the minority fork, like everyone using stablecoins is going to have to be on that fork or else they just got their balances burned. So it seems to me that having third party assets on a blockchain kind of fundamentally reduces its potential security. Have you thought about that? Yeah, and I think that's exactly what Tether's doing. I think that's by design. Uh, I'm a little conspiratorial based on what I've seen, the things Tether financially supports. Like they're on a lot of blockchains, they're in a lot of these layer two protocols, both in terms of being investors and in the protocols themselves and issuing assets on them. And they are very large. They have very dark pools of capital that are in competing projects. And I think that they are putting themselves or they are already in a position where they wield that influence uh, on these projects. As about as succinctly as I can put that, that that is something to be aware of, that these large stablecoin companies are a threat to anything that they touch. That's really interesting because there seem to be a lot of no-coiner arguments surrounding Tether, basically saying, you know, Tether is this machine for rehypothecating Bitcoin and creating Tethers and, you know, pumping the price. I just haven't done the deep dive myself to go into Tether's financials and their alleged history of deception and potential fraud to evaluate these kind of no-coiner critiques of Tether. My take is, look, I'd love it if Tether collapsed because I think it's kind of a distraction. And again, I, I think I'm closer to your side that stablecoins are an attack vector. And while they're temporarily useful because we still live in a dollarized world, I feel like we're not making a clean break of it. And it certainly complicates the game theory of blockchains when you have these large stablecoin issuers on there, you know, enticing developers and exerting influence. Yeah, I think when people argue about proof of reserves and, you know, Tether's backing and sustainability and all those things, I think that's like the kind of things Tether wants you to discuss. It's, it's the more shadowy, insidious influence of development, having their hands and all these protocols generally outsized influence on the ecosystem that's a bigger threat than if the tide went out because they you know were found to be bankrupt or something if tether collapsed to zero the ecosystem would be over it in a couple months like we'd have a bear market it would suck but what they're doing now is far more dangerous they could be playing a 10-year game where they make up a majority of the market cap of uh, a number of different protocols and and coordinate that and you know, ways that we've seen the legacy banking system due to all aspects of our society now. Like, they're basically the Federal Reserve of crypto. So I look at That's an interesting analogy. When we first met, we had been discussing a venture capitalist. Her name escapes me. I think you know who I mean. Probably. Yeah. It's a small community. <laughs> I think she's involved with Lightning Labs. And as I've been listening to her take on Bitcoin and DeFi and whatnot, and then Tarot comes out, and Tarot seems to be a protocol designed for US dollar stablecoin issuance on Bitcoin that can then be put into Lightning channels to now create native dollar payments on Lightning. I just thought, gosh, it's really interesting that this comes out 
and it coincides with the Lightning Labs VC funding round. This just seems like what VCs want. Definitely, when you see stuff being developed that doesn't quite make sense, and we like we we just went over, is there really any reason for non-Bitcoin assets to leverage Bitcoin security model? I think it's pretty safe to say no at this point. So why why is there so much funding or seemingly? You know, funding. Why is there so much fervor into these projects? And it's not just Tarot. Like it was RGB before that, which again, Tether is bankrolled. Um, Omnibolt again, Tether is bankrolled. They're Liquid, which you know, Tether is like pretty much the only user of uh, on Liquid. So think about getting back to if there's no real utility for these things, but they are a lever of control and in influencing protocols. Then we must conclude that that's what that's for, right? So that, yeah, that's why I'm very suspicious of assets on Bitcoin. There's no, there's no good reason for it. I can only think of bad, bad things come from it. That's a good place to stop. A sobering warning, and I think you defended well. So I'm really appreciative of you taking the time to have this talk. Can you share with our audience places where they can find your work and understand more about what you're about? Yeah, the best place to, for updates is our at shock. BTC on Twitter. Uh, and from there, you can find links to um, your products, lightning.video, and we have a couple other things cooking as part of that larger vision. And you can link to our Telegram channel from there. So, Shock BTC on Twitter is the best place to track us down. Okay. Well, Capitalist Dog, thank you so much for your time. It's been a fantastic conversation. And yeah, I mean, your product, it works. It does what it says. This is, this is great. It's been a pleasure, man. I just listened to that interview in its entirety, and I really enjoyed it. Capitalist Dog has a libertarian viewpoint that is a little different than my own, and his observations around the risk of stablecoins and Tether as a thing that undermines Bitcoin and any blockchains that they touch is really interesting. I don't know how we can prove or invalidate that concern, but it's something to keep in mind. I also think that his dismissal of Ethereum and other blockchains is pretty good from a first principles perspective. What problem do these blockchains solve? And if the marketing is this gobbledygook that's hard to understand, probably the answer is nothing. I really appreciated his views. I just wish that I had asked him more about scaling and how he views scaling going forward because I question whether or not lightning is enough or where the scaling will come from, if not from sidechains. I think he and I would probably both agree that as it stands, Bitcoin is not ready to onboard 6 billion people. On the other hand, I think his views on including developing nations in the economy using Bitcoin as that rail that now we can economically participate with everyone in the world and end the lockout of non-first world economies from the global financial system. I think that's really insightful and very clear. It was such a great conversation. I recommend his project, lightning.pages. It's pretty out there. If you're considering creating video content, it might be useful to you. And as always, you can reach out at bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com, at bitcoindadpod on Twitter, and you can always boost. Thanks so much and see you next time.